Thank you, Ken. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do ask for uh, your spirit to uh, open our ears, uh, our eyes, uh, and our hearts to receive your word. Lord, uh, use your word to help us to obey the command of Christ, not to worry and uh, to uh, avoid worry by becoming generous people, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I heard a story about worry many years ago. I've told it before, so some of you might be able to remember the punchline. If so, I apologize for putting you through it again because it's a bit corny, but it makes a point. So the story is this. There was a man who worried incessantly. When he woke up in the morning, he worried about all that he would have to face through the day. And as he moved through the day, he worried about all the things that were happening around him, all the concerns in the present. Uh, He also was tormented by decisions that he had made in the past, and he fretted over possible circumstances that might happen in the future. Not surprisingly, every night he tossed and turned in his bed, never getting enough sleep. And so that was another cause for worry. He had a friend who knew about his struggles with worry, and his friend would patiently listen to his struggles, uh, showing sympathy and offering offering different uh, bits of advice. He encouraged him to get help with his worry before he had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. And several weeks passed without the two of them seeing each other. But when the next time they met, the man who had been previously plagued by worry was a changed man. Uh, He was the most carefree person you could ever meet. All his anxieties and worries had simply vanished. And his friend was naturally curious what had happened. So the man proceeded to tell him what had happened. He was paying another person to do his worrying for him. He would tell this person of all his anxieties first thing in the morning, and the person then would spend all day doing his worrying. The person would even stay up at night, tossing and turning, worrying in his stead. And so this, he, was, he had a stand-in worrier. Well, his friend was um, you know, obviously amazed by this, um, but he could not deny how calm and peaceful his friend was. And he began to think, well, if he's paying this person to, to be his stand-in worrier every waking moment, this must get expensive. And so uh, he, he asked, how much is this costing you to pay this guy? Can you afford it? The man responded, well, I don't worry about the cost. That's what I pay him for. 
were it so easy. Sins of the mind are so easy, are, are so difficult to change. Our mind will grasp hold of, of a thought and begin running off in whatever direction before we realize what we're actually thinking about. Sometimes our thoughts seem quite uncontrollable. And then add this to the fact that nobody but you and God see the sins of the mind. It tempts us to less accountability for our thoughts and our desires. Instead of making any progress towards changing our thought patterns, sadly, many of us continue to develop those thoughts, nurture them, and develop deep-seated habits of thought. Uh, We can become quite proficient at worrying or lusting or coveting, or even boasting to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. These sinful thoughts can preoccupy our imaginations. They can dominate our daydreams. They can become so rooted in our subconscious that we do not realize how they affect our everyday life, how we're living, how we respond to each other, how what what hopes and dreams that we, that we form in response to these sinful thought patterns that uh, take place between our ears. So then the question is, how can we break the cycle? Or you might be asking, can we break the cycle? Are we doomed to the so-called internet remedies like uh, like stress-relieving medicines or herbal therapies, aromatherapies, breathing techniques, yoga exercises that only deal with the symptoms but do not solve the sins of the mind. Of course, the cycle can be broken. Jesus tells us not to be anxious or worried Look at verses 22 and then verse 29. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, and this is, uh, to use, this is an imperative, this is a command. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. Verse 29, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So, we're not to be worried. We are, we are to uh, repent of our um, worry. Worry being a sin of the mind. In other words, the cycle can be broken. Jesus would not tell us not to worry if it were impossible not to worry. Truly, His command for us not to worry is also a promise that he will help us break the cycle of worry because God promises to give his people grace to do that which he requires of us. So then, how does he help us? Well, first of all, and I'm getting a little running start at where we're going here, reviewing where we've been because this is the third sermon on this passage dealing with worry. So first of all, he gives us this, uh, he gives us a warning against this worldly, uh, this worldly orientation to life. 
We saw this two weeks ago where Jesus said in verse 23, For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. If our lives were cons- are consumed with seeking for food, clothing, and all the things like that, well, then we're going to worry about those things. Food, clothing, and, and the other necessities of life, they're subject to so many factors that are out of our control. A few days ago, the people in Texas, I bet most of them never, I mean, the, the overwhelming majority uh, never uh, gave any thought to their energy needs. Every time they flipped on a switch, the light came on. When it started getting cold, the heater would heat up the house. They, t- they were taking these things for granted. But in that winter storm this past week in Texas, four million people lost their powers lost their power for an extended period of time. And, and it ended up being a very dangerous uh, uh, circumstance. If you are living for that which is uncertain, then worry is going to be a natural response. So Jesus warns against a this-worldly orientation to life. He instructs us not to pursue food, clothing, and and things like that as an end in itself or as a reason for living. It's good to pursue a paycheck so that you can feed yourself. It's good to uh, be clothed and have a roof over your head. It's good to, to earn money for those kinds of things. But if you choose that as the reason for living, If you choose that as an end in itself, those things being given to uncertainty, then we're setting ourselves up for worry. Second, Jesus is teaching us that uh, we should trust God and make his priorities as our reason for living. Jesus gave us two vivid examples of of how that works. Tim mentioned them a couple of moments ago. God feeds the birds, those ugly ravens, ravens that God uh, very overtly, I think it was Leviticus 11, called them unclean. The Israelites detested them. God said to detest those ravens, and yet here is God saying that he feeds those detestable ravens. He takes care of their needs. Verse 28, I'm sorry, um, verse, verse 24, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they, neither, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? If you belong to to Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, He loves you. He has promised to supply your needs in this life. And so the, 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 the flowers of the field, they neither toil nor spin, but God arrays them in beauty. He says not even Solomon in all his glory 
was as beautiful or clothed as nicely as these flowers of the field that are here today, tomorrow, are worth nothing more than to be thrown into the fire. The implication being, again, God will clothe you. God will take care of your needs. Thirdly, we are to be kingdom-oriented. When we make this world uh, our reason for living, we are living like the world does. We are living as practical atheists. We're living as if God doesn't exist or he's not as committed to blessing us as he has promised to do. And so this is Jesus' point in verses 30 and 31. Jesus says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. There are only two ways to live in this world. Either we live for ourselves, or we live for the kingdom of God. There's no neutral area. There's no gray area. You've got a commitment to make, either to yourself and to the world or to God. So, which are you seeking after? There's no neutral position. Where is your heart? What's the direction of your life? What are you living for? Are you living for God and His kingdom? Or are you living for self and the world? If you seek God's kingdom as your priority, I've got good news for you. You will possess God's kingdom. Look at verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that a great little phrase? Fear not, little flock. It's the only place where we find this uh, phrasing where Jesus uses little flock. He's talking to his disciples who have been with him, who have followed him uh, all through Galilee, down through Judea, having no home, having left their possessions behind, uh, having no real um, uh, daily uh, place to to lay their head on a consistent basis. They're living their lives trusting in God's uh, good uh, or his faithfulness to his promises to, to bless them, and God has been blessing them. And Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. They've given up a lot, but he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'm anticipating a little bit where we're going here, but if you give up things for the kingdom of God, you cannot outgive God. You give up worldly possessions in this life, God has promised to give you his kingdom. Most, if not all of us, we want to be kingdom sinkers. We want God and his priority to be our priority. 
But in practice, we struggle to live for God. Why is that? Well, it could be that we do not understand how deeply rooted um, deeply rooted in this world that our desires really are. We might misunder, uh, underestimate, I should say, um, the, the extent of worldliness, our commitment to things that uh, God says should not be our commitment. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. It's kind of an odd, out-of-the-blue statement here. Uh, What does he mean by that? Well, basically, Jesus is asking, are you prepared to sell your possessions to the needy? If not, then you're too rooted in this world. It's as simple as that. If you, he's saying you love your possessions too much if you are unwilling to sell your possessions and give them to the poor. You know, I don't know if you have read the scriptures like I have over the years, but in Luke 18, where the, the rich young ruler... Or, comes up to Jesus, he says, look at how good I am. I've, I've kept the commandments. I'm ready to follow you wherever you want me to go. And Jesus says, before you can follow me, you've got to sell all your possessions. Give it all to the poor and then come follow me. And he went away sad because he was, he was unwilling to do it. He loved his possessions too much. And I kind of scoff at this guy. In Mark, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, and there's a part of me that says, oh, come on, guy. Jesus loves you. What are you, why are you hanging on to this stuff and going to hell because you love that stuff too much? You know, and it's easy to look at that young rich ruler and and kind of be a bit judgmental. But Jesus here is saying the same thing to his disciples. By extension, he's saying the same thing to us as his followers, as his disciples. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. There's no other way around it. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 33 is a magnifying glass amplifying the true commitments of your heart. You say, well, who could ever sell their possessions in order to give it all to the poor? You know what? A generous person would have little difficulty doing that. I'll use the question that I've often asked. When is a thief no longer a thief? You can arrest the thief, you can throw the thief in jail, you can nail down or take away anything that he could possibly steal. And that thief is still a thief in his heart, even though he is not actively stealing anything. Until that thief becomes a generous person, that thief 
will still be a thief at heart. And so Jesus is placing before us an unqualified demand that is aimed at our hearts and our desires. As I said last week, if you balk at the suggestion that you must sell your possessions in order to give them to the needy, then you have a spiritual heart diagnosis that is very unhealthy. It means that you are too tied to your possessions. You need to become a generous person. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because only a generous person is going to willingly part with their possessions to give them to the poor. But you know what? This happens as we recognize uh, better the true depths of our materialism and repent of it. Repenting of materialism means turning away from our this-worldly thinking and turning to God. In repentance, there's an exchange that takes place, a turning from and a turning to. In turning to God, we are also turning toward a kingdom-oriented commitment where we seek first God and His kingdom righteousness. Our thinking patterns need to be reversed. Our habits need to be transformed. Our desires need to be changed. We need to preoccupy our minds with the things of God, especially having communion with God and His Word. And I, I want to I make this offer. Uh, if, if you want to know, because I'm meeting so many different Christians. This, this is something I took for granted because the, the man who discipled me very early on in my Christian life said, this is, this is how you commune with God. And he taught me how to journal from the Scriptures. And I've taken it for granted. Well, this is what Christians do. And I've, over the, the years, have met so many people. And they'll say, I don't know how to journal. I've never journaled. Uh, from Scripture in my life. I, I read through the Bible, but I don't know how to study it. I don't know how to personally commune with God. And so if you have questions about that, email me. I, I would love to get back with you on that and and uh, personally walk you through how to commune with God from His Word. That's that, our, our minds, Paul talks in Romans 12 about our minds being renewed by our thinking being transformed by the Word of God. And so I would, I would love to, to talk to you about that. Assuming that you want to be a generous person, how then does God tell us to be generous? You know, if we leave it out here as you need to be a generous person without talking through the specifics, um, you know, if you... If we give no definition to it, it will be easy to ignore it. So assuming you want to be a generous person, how does God tell us to be generous? Well, by definition, generosity has many implications for how you treat your possessions and how you treat your wealth. So first of all, giving or generosity 101, God commands us to give away at least 10% of our gross income for Christian work. This is what we call tithing. This is the bare minimum uh, for what it means to be generous. 
But generosity does not stop at bare minimums. Generosity is generous in its desires to bless others for the kingdom of God. That's what Christian generosity is. Generosity is generous in its desires to to bless others for God's kingdom. Generosity sees a need and tries to meet that need for the glory of God. Or as Jeffrey Wilson says, true generosity is the spontaneous expression of love. Generosity trusts God for our present needs and is willing to give our wealth with the hope that God will use it to bless others. Generosity, you might be surprised to hear does not start when a need is observed. You don't switch on the, 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 the generosity switch when you see a need. It won't come on <laughs> like, like the uh, people in Texas switching on their, their light switch when there's no power coming to the house. Generosity does not start when a need is observed. Generosity starts in private devotion. And then it moves into budget planning. We should be strategizing in our homes about how to make do with less so that we can have more to give for the work of God's kingdom. I think that's what verse 33 is saying. I don't see any other way around it. Nor do I want to see any other way around it. Because that is this is God's word. How much ministry how much mercy ministry how how much evangelism how much world missions or other christian work goes undone because we are too busy loving ourselves loving our money or our possessions to develop the grace of generosity jesus is not saying that a christian cannot own possessions A Christian can own possessions. Jesus is not saying that one cannot be wealthy. In fact, uh, I'm part of a business leads group, and they ask me to pray every week. And so I often uh, will, or sometimes will lead, open up the, the prayer or the meeting praying, God, I pray that you would help these business owners to, to make as much money as they can possibly imagine having. But then I follow it up with, and Lord, help them to, to not love one penny of it. Money is not bad. Having money is not bad. The love of money, however, leads to all kinds of uh, temptation and evil. Uh, asking God to make you more generous is actually paying eternal or praying eternal blessings upon yourself. Generosity for God's kingdom, instead of assuring poverty or leading toward poverty, guarantees you eternal riches. Look again at verse 33. Look at it closely. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide Now listen, in, in doing that, you are providing For yourselves, money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 
generosity for God's kingdom, instead of assuring poverty, guarantees you eternal prosperity. When we give to gospel work, those monies are paid forward into eternity. You know, you can't take your money with you when you die. But, but you can send it on ahead of you as long as you are investing in the eternal kingdom of God. Philip Ryken says, Do not settle for short-term investments that will only help you when you retire. Extend your planning horizon into eternity, where nothing ever depreciates and everything accrues to the glory of God. You know, in my mind's eye, I see one of you going into your uh, retirement advisor, your, your money manager or whatever, and telling them, I'm planning for eternity, so I'm giving money away. I'm planning to give money away and watching the, the look on this guy or this lady's face when you say that. The accrued wealth. It doesn't just wait for you up in heaven, but also pays dividends here on earth because generosity attacks worry at the root. Jesus said in verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. David Gooding comments, Store up your treasure on earth, and it will inevitably pull your heart in the direction of earth. Store it in heaven, and it will pull your heart, and with it your goals, ambitions, and longings toward heaven. Sometimes I've spoken with Christians who spent uh, their wealth or their talent, or their time, maybe even their lives, many years for the kingdom of God, but have little to show for it. And they wonder, have I made a mistake? When when you give for the kingdom of God, God knows it. And he is telling you, here in verse 33, that you have provided for yourself money bags that do not grow old, that you have gained treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I've given money uh, from time to time to uh, the poor person either on the street or on the corner or comes into the church and, uh, you know, you hear the sob story and your, your, your heart goes out to them. And then you find out well, they were just playing you, you know. And, um, but in the eternal scheme of things, that money, although they may have wasted it, it was not wasted. It was simply paid forward in the account that God has set up for me in Christ Jesus up in heaven. Jesus is not sitting up in heaven, surrounded in eternal riches, blithely telling us to be generous for the kingdom of God. You know, Our Lord Jesus came here 2,000 years ago. He came trusting in his fatherly care. He traveled around Judea and Galilee with no place to lay his head, but he never went around begging. He never went around unclothed. All his needs were met by God. God used God's people. I think it's in chapter 3 of Luke, 3 or 4, and talks about some of the ladies that were part of his entourage supplying the needs of um, Jesus and the disciples as they traveled around preaching. 
But Jesus never went without. He trusted that his father would, would always meet his needs. He sought the kingdom of God with all his heart. And he never once struggled with worries about earthly possessions. He may have been tempted because he was tempted in every way like we are. But he didn't give in to it because he wasn't loving his earthly possessions too much. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, as we conclude, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He laid aside all his heavenly riches in order that he might live a humble and poor life. He went to that awful cross and all the accumulated sins that you have committed, that I have committed, that all his people have committed throughout the ages were placed collectively upon him. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. That's how much he loves us. Book of Hebrews just kind of offhandedly says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. He loves us. He cares for us. We are dear to his heart. He gave his life to that cross that we might live, that we might be God's own dear children. Nothing his soul hated more than sin and wickedness. And he bore the, the punishment for your sin, your wickedness, in your behalf. You should know, therefore, that God will care for you even as you expand your generosity and your giving for God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, for our Lord Jesus to challenge us, on the one hand, is painful because we know how tied we are to this world. But on the, the same time, Lord, it is so pleasing. It brings us such joy to know that living for this world is not all that there is. That you have a heavenly treasure stored up for us. Therefore, we are to treasure Christ here on earth to make him our goal, our priority in his kingdom, knowing that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Oh, Lord, help us to love Jesus more. Expand our uh, trust in him. Expand proportionately our generosity to those who have need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.